Welcome to Antimatter Pod, a Star Trek podcast where we discuss fashion, feminism, subtext, and subspace. Hosted by Annika and Liz. Today we discuss the latest episode of Star Trek Discovery, Light and Shadows. Hey Annika. Yeah? We found Spock. We found Spock! It's been so long. <laughs> we were searching and searching and, we, you know, he was home in the sand. During the week, a friend of mine posted a set of screen caps from the Next Generation episode Unification, where Sarek, days before death, is reminiscing to Picard about how Spock would just take off as a kid and disappear into the mountains for days upon days. And yeah. I was reading that going, Sarek, at any stage did you think to look in the mountains? <laughs> he was gone for days and it happened so often. And he was always found in the same place. Hmm. Mm. I don't know. Sometimes I think Sarek might have some struggles with the whole logic thing. <laughs> Vulcans are supposed to be very self-reliant, especially Vulcan children. So... Yeah, yeah. Look, I, I'm sure this is less concerning if a, if a human kid did it. But Spock is half human, as is discussed at length throughout the entire yes. franchise. And again, in this... <laughs> episode in this very episode amazing it's almost like it's defining trait oh Spock. uh and i mean his whole family was really they were all at their most them <laughs> it was great they were indeed very unnecessarily dramatic and really all it needed was cyborg turning up with a big smile and <laughs> saying why doesn't anyone care that i'm not here you're a grown man, Cyborg. You've got a whole cult. <laughs> Clearly you can look after yourself. Go tend to your sheep. Luckily, even without Cyborg around, we certainly have plenty of drama and interesting dynamics in our family. Because <laughs> okay. that's what they're best at. They're best at drama. And, you know, Michael, she tries so hard to not be best at drama. And, like... She really <laughs> does believe she's the sensible one. She wants to be the stabilizer of the family, but she fails. <laughs> she's, she's just as dramatic. She just waits for the opportune moment. You know, it's such a middle child thing to be the peacekeeper and the builder of bridges <laughs> and the one who tries to go along to get along. Yeah. Yep. And Spock is the baby and they're constantly worrying about him. <laughs> I mean, yes. He is, and it's it's so entertaining to think about Spock, who is, you know, such an icon of Star Trek. Like, he, there's so much to Spock. I think that people who have never seen a single episode of Star Trek still know who Spock is. Yeah. So, to think of that character as the baby of the family, who everybody's worrying about, and yet have that be 100% true throughout the entire series... Like, there are multiple movies about Spock going off on his own and people saying, okay, we gotta go, we gotta go get Spock again. I feel like you might be channeling Dr. McCoy just a little bit <laughs> as you say this. So should we start with Little Spock? Let's start with Little Spock. Yes, I really like that actor and I really love the girl that they have playing Michael, who was the same yes. girl who was in the role last year. Yes. I think this was intentional, but I don't think it was uh, meant to be like a hammer on the head or anything. Mm. But the fact that Michael and Spock 
get along better when they have the same haircut. <laughs> it's just really, it's really funny to me. It's, I mean, I, on one hand, I'm like, damn those Vulcans for, for forcing that ridiculous haircut on her when she has such great hair. I but, and And squashing her individuality. I mean, but obviously that's what, that's what Vulcans do. The only person that they can't do it to is Amanda because she clearly refuses. Yes. But I, I did, I did like that when they resembled each other and were sort of in the now we're, now we're family look, they did get along better. When the first episode of the season came out, I wondered if that actress was aging out of the role of Michael in that phase of her life. And then I wondered if it was just because her hair was different. And I think there is a tendency uh, for white people to subconsciously read girls of colour with, well, black girls with natural hair as older. And she looked much, much younger with her bowl cut. So I've realised that's a a me problem, not a them problem. Yeah. I'm just going to sit quietly and unpack (laughs) that and do some reading and stuff. You can also put that into the story because obviously the Vulcans, when they see Michael, even with her bowl cut, they don't see a Vulcan. They only see a human, no matter what they do to make her look more Vulcan. You know, I guess to a Vulcan, a a human with a bowl cut is just as youthful as a a tiny baby. I'm not particularly qualified to to have any... (laughs) Now, so now I'm like, so all of us are tiny babies to Vulcans, like Captain Kirk, tiny baby, fight, tiny baby. Like we're all Paul Stamets. Tiny baby. Look at that baby having a tantrum again. Giorgio, angry, evil, tiny baby. <laughs> Captain Picard. Tiny toddler. baby. <laughs> uh, anyway, so that was a tangent that we don't need to revisit. I was also glad to see both in the young Michael and Spock and in when they were finally reunited, that Michael's angst wasn't a part of it. That in these scenes, yes, she was just his sister, just really, really worried about him and determined to help. There was no, you know, I have to save you because then I will feel better about myself and the terrible things I did. It was all about making sure that Spock was okay. Yeah, which I think is really good because it's appropriate. This is not a situation where she needs to make her problems his, basically. And she recognises that because I think she's a really... She's not great with emotions, but in some respects she's a very emotionally mature character. Yes. Uh, she's uh, better at walking that Vulcan-human balance Yes. than the other people who are sort of required to do it. She's becoming more comfortable. I think she went through a lot last year, <laughs> and, uh, and that helps her sort of reconcile some of herself and herself. Agreed. And so she's in a good place to be able to be in this family with the, you know, sick and injured Spock, who is, is in need of help and has lost the ability to communicate, really. Yes. And then the very over-emotional Amanda, and in his own way, very over-emotional Sarek. When he delivered that line, you know, I cannot lose both my children in in one day. One, Cyborg is once again not feeling the love. Two, by Vulcan standards, he was almost in tears and on his knees. Absolutely. I almost wonder if James Frayne didn't overplay it, but 
It was my favorite thing in the entire episode, so I'm going to go with no. (laughs) It was so beautiful. But I, it was just so overt. I think notably, okay, so we're skipping ahead, but this is is my favorite thing of, of the episode, was how devastated Sarek is. But I also think that he knows that Spock can't even... Spock doesn't know any of them are in the room. Yes. So, like, the whole I'm not speaking Spock right now thing is not being jeopardized because Spock won't remember any of this. Which is, of course, Sarek's priority, winning that argument. Definitely Sarek's priority. Michael has seen this side of Sarek last year, and they are sort of a really good place where they sort of get each other, I feel. Yeah. He knows that, and so he's not upset about losing his Vulcan mask in front of Michael the same way he would be as Spock or, like, any other Vulcan. Like, they're the only ones in the cave, too. And I honestly think he is partially manipulating both Michael and Amanda (laughs) and pulling out the I am not the the heartless bastard that you are accusing me of and I'm going to prove it to you by playing on your emotions. I love that idea. It did not cross my mind. But it just, it just, like, using his very sincere actual emotions to manipulate his loved ones is so sarric. Exactly. the worst. Oh, my God. He's not lying. Those are his emotions, but he pulled them out for a reason. Mm. (laughs) So so I don't think that uh, Frayne overplayed it. And also... Fun fact, his wife directed this episode. I know! I was like, look, it's, it's James Frayne's best performance as Sarek that he totally pulled out for his wife, and I was like, yay! <laughs> <laughs> his wife, Marta Cunningham, is also, I believe, only the third woman of colour to direct Star Trek. And she's good. This was a very well-directed... <laughs> Even the pacing. <laughs> yes! <laughs> which, yeah. which is, you know... A, a collaborative thing. <laughs> a director can't fix pacing that's in the writing. But No, but this had a really strong sense of everything moving and clicking together. Yeah, and there were there was real some really beautiful transitions and like not just between scenes but also within scenes of you know the way that, that was it was everything was being presented, especially in that cave scene. Yes. Was really pretty. Uh, what impressed me about that cave scene and the dialogue between Amanda and Sarek is how apparent their height differences were. <laughs> you know, the camera's looking down at Amanda and looking up at Sarek and, like, this is, this is what they see when they look at each other. Yes. I don't usually notice her direction, but that is one of the points where I remembered, oh, yeah, this is being directed by James Frayne's wife. And I don't know how tall she is, but I think certainly women tend to be generally smaller than men and... I am a fairly short woman, so I do notice height differences and I do notice when television and movies reflect my experience of basically looking up at everyone. Right, and so it really puts you into the scene too. It really pulls you in so that we feel like we are part of this family. Not just that, but like we're seeing it through their eyes and they, you know, we're constantly being put in Sarek's shoes and Amanda's shoes. And, and, you know, Sarek is talking to Michael and in the background we can see and he can see Amanda sitting with Spock. It was just a really cool 
direction and set design. And I know it's all collaborative, but I just think Marta Cunningham did a really good job. Yes. Bring her back. <laughs> okay, let's talk about Amanda, since we're, we're in this crazy family. So she's not just wearing virginal blue, but dressed in robes like the Holy Mother, but she, her robes sort of have wings like an angel. Uh, and oh. then in the scene where they're entering the shrine, the light is all red and it makes her robes appear red. And I'm just saying, there's a crack theory on Reddit that Amanda is the red angel and I really enjoy it. Don't know if I believe it, but I like it. Oh my gosh, Amanda is the red angel. Yeah, I mean, part of me doesn't even want to speculate. I, I like stories to, I, I like I like to be surprised. Like, this episode surprised me mm. at the end. And I'm, as soon as I was surprised, I was like, I should have known that, like, obviously. But, but I didn't think of it. I didn't, you know. And I love that feeling of, whoa. <laughs> and I also love stories that make sense, that unfold, you know, that... It's okay if I guess ahead of time if, if it's because the story is being told well. You yes. know, I like, I, I like to pick up on the signals and the, and the ideas. And then, um, you know, I like that result just as much as being surprised, probably. But I feel like there are certain ideas about the Red Angel that will disappoint <laughs> me, and I want to avoid them. So I don't, I don't want to think about it too much. No, that makes sense. It's like... Um... Chris of Chris Reviews around the time just before the Lorca reveal happened. She had this wonderful review and meta that basically said, don't stand for theories because if your theory doesn't come true and you're disappointed, then your experience is not as good as it could have been. So have your theories, but hold, hold them loosely until you know. And, and I don't know if that advice is for everyone, but it's really good for me. Mm, yes. That said, Amanda would be hilarious. I mean, okay, so my daughter's favorite superhero was Thor. She was like in first grade. It was adorable Aww. how much she loved Thor. And she also loved Spock. Having only seen the Kelvin movies. Mm. Then we went to see the second Thor movie and Frigga dies. Yes. Uh, in order for Loki and Thor to make up or something. It was certainly a choice. And it was the saddest thing in the world when my daughter turned to me and said, Thor's mommy died just like Spock's mommy died. Oh. And I was like, I, I cannot like feel the emotions that I'm feeling right now. They are so overwhelming because I was so sad and I was so angry. <laughs> that my, you know, eight-year-old had to deal with this nonsense of her very favorite characters losing their mother in completely separate fandoms that were wholly unrelated. Yes. It's like, this is what genre fiction, and probably all fiction, thinks about mothers. So, the fact that Amanda is, is a full character that has relationships with each of the people in her life in, in this in this scene like that are separate but related that she has her own uh emotions she has a whole like she totally hid spot from everybody she has her own agenda yeah 
it's just the fact that she's a real character is is so exciting. And so then the fact that she's a gray character with all of these, you know, yes, she is like the mama bear who is going to protect Spock at all costs, but she's not, she's really smart about it. She's really blind about it. She's not rational. There's just so much there. And it's so exciting for this character that was basically just perfect mom idea yes. and then dead. Like <laughs> Those are the two options of Amanda that we have before now. Yeah, I was thinking in the bit where she basically points out that she has made all the sacrifices in their relationship and that Sarek never even considered giving up his life on Vulcan to live on Earth. That really struck me because... I love Amanda as a character and one of the things that I was really hoping that they would address with her this year is how she's really a throwback to the 1960s you know she was conceived as the perfect diplomatic wife and mother she's witty she's charming she's great at cocktail parties but she doesn't really get much beyond that and and you know the, the 1960s depiction of a Vulcan marriage was of a very subservient woman. She has to walk a step behind Sarek at all times. You know, it's really very dated and quite illogical, I have to say. There's always been this tension to me with Amanda's character because of that, because it's difficult to separate her from the archetypes from which she was drawn. And I think that they're doing a really good job in still... You know, she's still very family-oriented, I think, given the nature of the series and the fact that her daughter is the protagonist. We're never going to see her having a plot line outside of motherhood. But I'm starting to feel like she's a character who, you know, she does have a life. She has more dimensions. She has more motivations. We see... We know her better. We see her little ruthless streak. Yes, exactly. Uh, I love the idea that she is going to use her diplomatic status to get her way I was <laughs> like you go <laughs> like without even you know she's doing it all outside of the sphere of Sarek obviously she needs to she's hiding Spock from him as well but she's just like I'm gonna throw Sarek's name around <laughs> and and all of his power and I'm gonna take it on for myself and you just you just try to stop me <laughs> Yeah, and it's still a very old-fashioned depiction of feminine power that derives entirely from her husband. But she makes it work. And I think, you know, we have so many other depictions of feminine power that, that I can live with this. Because all of the other women in the series, not you know, because there are so many other women in the series, and we have seen all of these different ideas, and we've seen them interact, I think that that's why. It's, yes. If there was just... These are the only ways to be a woman, but there, it's not. And I can imagine, like, I, I agree that we're not ever going to see her outside of these roles, but I can imagine that she exists outside of these roles. Yes, that's what I was trying to say. Also, I, do you remember in the Cornwell Holiday Fic Exchange, I wrote a cat fic, obviously, but I had a throwaway line comparing Amanda to Emperor Georgiou. I thought I was being very clever. I did not imagine for a moment that the show was actually going to set up Georgiou and Amanda as foils for one another. Yeah. They haven't met. Like, I don't know that Amanda is even aware of Georgiou's existence. But, but the show was paralleling them. I like, know. This episode was about 
Michael's two mothers surprising her by being similar <laughs> and and by like uh Georgia was acting more like the Amanda <laughs> that Michael knows and Amanda was acting more like the Georgia that Michael knows and that was really interesting. I'm starting to think that Michael might at this stage need a female role model who is not capable of profound ruthlessness and I'm sorry <laughs> but it's definitely not Kat but you know maybe Tilly. Tilly can be Michael's role model. Aww. But yeah, how great was that? And and I remember around the time, I think it was Dark Frontier in Voyager, and there was the whole tug of war between the Borg Queen and Janeway for Seven of Nine, which wasn't as overtly maternal. But I, I don't think we've seen anything like this before in Star Trek beyond that. And I think this yeah. is so much more interesting in its execution because even though she's a monster who eats people, Giorgio has a lot more complexity than a Borg queen. Yes, and she's getting to show it to yes. us. Not be the mustache twirling villain, <laughs> but uh, have all these different sides. And, which, and she was introduced that way. Like, in the Mirror Universe, she had these, these vulnerabilities and... yeah different ways of thinking and seeing, which is why Michael brought her over in the first place and saved her. Those things were established, and then as soon as she was here, she started doing... And, you know, I don't blame her for being in a whole new universe and, and like, completely cut off after having lost all of her power. Yes. You know, I understand her decision to be like, I am going to go back to my instincts and... and in order to survive, I'm going to fight as hard as possible. And it's a defense mechanism. Like, yeah. you know, I'm not going to let these weak Federation people see my vulnerabilities. I'm going to be the monster that they think I am. And of course, I don't trust any of her motives in regards to Spock or Michael. But I think that she is showing that vulnerable side of her again, the one that Michael saved. And I'm, yes. I'm glad to see that. Yes, because also I don't think she can carry a whole spin-off by herself if she is just a, a one-dimensional villain. Exactly. Uh, at some point she's going to have to have vulnerability with characters who aren't Michael to make that work, but, you know, they've got, they've got time. Before we completely off Amanda, I do want to say one more thing about her. Yes. That when she said, I chose this life, I chose to be here because I love you, but Spock is the one who's, who suffered for it. Mm. I understand uh, Amanda's frustrations and that she was bringing this to Sarek and, and, say, and laying it at his feet and saying, this is why I'm doing all of these things and, you know, you're, you created us. But there seems to, like, she didn't seem to be taking any responsibility for her part of it. Yeah, yeah. She could have spoken up about, for example, his learning disability back when he was a child and going through it, she could have explained Alice in Wonderland to, to Sarek at any point in their children's childhood, and I think it would have been a better time than now. Yes. <laughs> I feel that I, I, liked, I liked it because I, I, it felt like a flaw on, on her part. It felt like she, in a, in a very similar way to her husband, she was blind to her own responsibility and accountability because she probably feels guilt about it. Yes. So it, it just made, it made them more similar. It made their relationship more complex. It made Amanda more complex. But it definitely stood out to me. And I, I was like, 
you know, I get you, Amanda, but also you could have done something. Right. She did not have to, she did not have to stay with Sarek. I'm not saying they should have gotten a divorce, but they could have come up with an arrangement where she lived on Earth and found a more balanced way to raise Spock. You know, that's right. a possibility. And it's, I, I, like, it's exactly what you said. She is not taking responsibility. And I think there are options that people are just blind to because they're emotionally compromised and it's very easy for people to, who sit outside the relationship to go, oh, yeah, she needs to leave him. But, you know, isn't that what all advice column readers do? Exactly. And they will. They'll give you, like, these are the steps. And it's like, yeah, mm. I, I know the steps. But it's the, you know, it's all of this messy emotional... And, and sometimes financial or physical, like there's all sorts of reasons why you can't do these things. Yeah, even without the financial issues for Sarek and Amanda, you know, there's the social consequences, there's, I suppose, some kind of publicity, there's the impact on Spark of taking him away from Vulcan, and clearly he does benefit to a considerable degree from a Vulcan upbringing. Like, I'm not saying that leaving Sarek and Vulcan would have been the best solution, or even a better solution than staying. It's just interesting that it seems to never be on the table. Right. They made the decision to raise Spock as a Vulcan on Vulcan with Vulcans. Mm. And so saying, you know, all you Vulcans are Vulcaning him is a little like, okay, but that's what you decided. Yes. And I also think that like, if your kid is not getting the support he needs at school, maybe you should like deal with that. And maybe, maybe Amanda tried and they rejected her and she was embarrassed to bring it to Sarek or something because I cannot believe that the Vulcans would not listen to Sarek but because I guess because the learning disability is from her side she feels she feels embarrassed she doesn't want Sarek to feel like Spock is too human I don't know there are a lot of messy emotions and that these have been messy since the 1960s all of this has always been there the Sarek family shenanigans and dramas that's a completely from day one occurrence. Yes. And I love having more context for it. I don't think that it changes anything about what we know about Spock or Sarek in the quote-unquote future. It has more layers. It doesn't take anything in a way, and it doesn't... It make, it, everything that happened make, makes sense. Even yes. Amanda's, Amanda's missteps that probably didn't look like missteps at the time. No, no, that's the thing. Like, I think you were saying a few weeks ago, my understanding of parenthood is you do your best and it's not always going to work out, but you don't know that when you're making those decisions, so. Right, exactly. As a person without children, my understanding is that most parents are just trying. Well, yeah, I mean, I will say as a person with children, I have done what, what Amanda does. I have been, I'm not saying that Amanda did the wrong thing. I'm saying that there are there were other options and that at some point she should have trusted her marriage enough to include Sarek in her issues with Spock. Yes. Like Sarek is the worst at peopling and at raising children, but I don't I don't think he wants to be. Like no, he, no. I think that Sarek would have done everything he could to help Spock if he had known that there was more he could do. Yes, this is why I say that Worf is a worse dad than Sarek, because Sarek tries. He's, Sarek is always trying. 
Yes. And despite himself, he managed to produce three children who are successful in their field. Granted, one of those fields is leading a cult, but that was his choice and he was very good at it. And Spock is a huge success. And Michael is excellent. You know, she's great. Yeah. So maybe be... No, we should never give Sarek a break. That's, that's not going to happen. But he did okay despite himself. I understand Amanda feeling like she was alone in this because anything that seemed inferior in Spock, I'm sure she assumed was her, her fault. <laughs> it, was, it was all about his humanity. And the Vulcans absolutely do uh, look down on mm. humans as, again, little babies, you know? Little babies. They think that they're going to outgrow it someday and be as awesome as Vulcans, but they're, you know, not for a thousand years or so. <laughs> and mm. maybe they'll catch up with us. And it's inherent. It's not, it's, you know, Sarek loves his wife and his family, and he does respect them. But he also, he doesn't know how to show respect in, a, in the way that they need because it's not the way that Vulcans show respect. And he doesn't realize that the way he's just treating them... Is not fulfilling their needs. Right, yeah. It's not, it's not fulfilling their needs and it's not like, he's not going out of his way to disrespect them, but just he, he doesn't notice that yeah. he accidentally is. Because it's just, it's not the way that he does things, and it's not the way that he learned. And because he does, on a certain level, think that all humans are inferior. Like, that's just the way he understands things. Yeah. And he's worked really hard to, you know, change that, because he he respects them, and, and I think he loves all of humanity. I think that Sarek just finds them all fascinating and interesting and envies them. It's okay, you can say it. He's a Vulcan weeaboo for humans. <laughs> but it's it's just a, there's a cultural block that he hasn't... He's never felt the need to, to unlearn. <laughs> yes, even though he really should have before he got married. I mean, he really should have... His entire existence. <laughs> he's married to a human. He's the representative to the humans. Like, of everyone on Vulcan, he should know the most about humans and especially how to interact with them. And so, like, think about every other Vulcan. <laughs> if Sarah can't do it, like, it's amazing any of them talks to us. <laughs> he's considered a dangerous radical for his pro-human <laughs> behavior that, yeah that's the, exactly so he feels like he's fighting the fight you know like he's he's like i'm in the trenches you're working out for for all of the, the for humanity i am your champion and sammy is like oh my gosh if you're a champion like why are we even trying to bring it back to the question of Spock's learning disability and tie it in with Wonderland, which I see as our next bullet point, do you think that Amanda taking taking charge of that issue is a sign that she is still a teacher in this universe? Because her career was never established in canon. We've just moved away from the teacher fanon in the last few years. I mean, I th it makes sense to me. I mean, clearly, if she's not a teacher, she was like a, a, a literature major or something. like Or a nerd. <laughs> I know that 
I love Alice in Wonderland. I, it's obviously a deliberate choice on Amanda's part, like she clearly has a, a connection. I'm projecting, but I feel that because it was such a huge part of this episode, and it's been a huge part of Discovery, but it was such a huge part of this episode, and it's always been Amanda's, and she was saying, like, I live on Vulcans, surrounded by Vulcans, and I don't know how to deal with you people. Like, I think that she's like, I crossed over into Wonderland and decided to stay there. Yes. And I needed to show my children how to survive it. And I just think it's so clever and amazing to use the opposite of logic to do that, to deal with how impossibly logical everything always <laughs> is. I don't think the writers were like, of, of Discovery were like, okay, we're going to read Alice and we're going <laughs> to put it all in here. I think that they worked on the idea, the cultural idea of Alice mm. in Wonderland and some quotes uh, as well. I'm, sh- I'm not saying they didn't read it, but I'm saying that I don't think they're like sitting there with Alice in Wonderland choosing the exact, you know, quote, the exact scene that it has to be. So, yeah. Next you're going to tell me they didn't read Aeschylus for last week's episode. <laughs> Surely just... not. <laughs> I'm, I'm saying that, that Alice has, has grown past the book <laughs> itself. You know, most people, the first thing they hear about Alice in Wonderland is like a Disney film. Alice is everywhere. There's, there are many different ideas in Alice. But yeah, so Alice is important to me, is what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. And so, like, sometimes I think that I made up Star Trek Discovery with my, like, subconscious. <laughs> Somehow I have magic chaos powers that sent all of the things I love into the minds of the Star Trek writers. Because so much of it is appeared on screen. <laughs> Please continue, because I love your ideas. <laughs> Meanwhile, in another plotline... Pike and Tyler are going through a different kind of rabbit hole. Yes. Do you see what I did there with the second yeah. and stuff? I'm uh-huh. so proud. Good job. It was like a, it's like a time uh, looking glass. <laughs> well, like Tilly says, everything is cooler when you put time in front of it. <laughs> That's right. I love that they were. It was. It was such. It was such a road trip. It was because let's take the two people who have been sniping at each other for the last two episodes and stick them together in a tiny space and they have to work together to escape. (laughs) It was so tropey and and yet I loved everything that happened. They got on the shuttle and I was like, oh no, I ship it. And then they accidentally brush hands as they reach for the buttons and I was like, oh, maybe the show ships it. And and then the squid probe turned up and I was like, the squid probe ships it. The squid ships it. (laughs) And also, like, Ash, everyone's been saying, oh, Beardo, Ash is, is so hot and he's so wonderful. And I didn't get it until this episode. In this episode, I was like, oh my god, Beardo, Ash is so hot. Like, and I am, I, for the first time, he really looked Klingon. Which, yes. Which is weird, but. Yeah, which is strange. And yeah, I was just like, wow, you're such a hot Klingon right now. I was totally into it. Uh, it's like, he looks like an original series Klingon. Yes. Without the brown face. Right, without the brown face. It's like the right version, which based on 
previews for next week. I feel like that's what they're trying to do, is like, let's take the original series, like the bad things about the original series aesthetic, and fix them. So, yeah. Ash. So, like, you know, if Pike wants to, you know, go for it. <laughs> I, I approve. Good, good choices. <laughs> And Ash was also righted in his call-out for Pike, and it was a very gentle call-out, and the same with last week. And I noticed that there was a lot of pushback against Ash's criticism, or not even, it's barely even a criticism, but his remarks to Pike last week. And I, I cynically wonder if there would be that much resentment of Ash if he was a white guy. But I think he was right, and Pike admits as much. And I do think that uh, Ash is not correct when he says that Pike is hoping they won't survive this mission. I think that's a little extreme. But, you know, Ash is a pretty extreme sort of guy, so and he might even be projecting a little. I can imagine that he's projecting a little. I can imagine that he understands Pike's issues, that his anxieties and his mm. overcompensation because that's how he feels as well. I could I can see that that he sort of recognizes some of the same traps, I guess. I just realized that in Pike, he sees himself, he sees Voke, and Voke wanting to serve to Kuvma before the war and not being able to, and then overcompensating in this ridiculous way by becoming torchbearer and continuing to serve him to the point where he changes species. Yes. Ah, oh, I feel so good about that, that realization. I didn't see a lot of criticism of the Ashton Pike, but maybe I just avoided it. I mostly saw it in the form of people arguing against it. In this episode in particular, like, Pike was was wrong from the beginning. Ash's, you know, where's Michael? That was, that was over the top. <laughs> like, Ash was, was pushing too hard for intel about where Michael went. And you know he didn't care about it for Spock reasons. Exactly. I was going to say, and it was clear that it was not about the mission at all. Like, mm. that was nothing. But in in his discussions with Pike about the Red Angel and and, uh, and when that came around again and, and trusting those kinds of... When, and when he was saying, like, Pike was saying, I want to do this and I'm going to do that and, I'm gonna, and we're going to do this and just sort of taking charge, you know, I'm, I'm going to go on the mission, and, and that's just, you know, end, end of story, and I've decided how we're going to address this. You're like, you're, you're not even a part of my crew, you're like under my crew, so just do it. And Ash wasn't, like, in, in those interactions, Ash was very polite, he was very respectful, he was just presenting the, the alternative viewpoint, and only when when Pike was not listening at all, did he start, like, shouting at him? Because it was like, you're, you know, look, I am trying to help you. Mm. Last week, I felt like I was standing up for Ash and I, and, and relating to Ash and I wasn't supposed to. Mm. But this week, I felt like, oh, okay, it's correct for me to be on the puppy side. I think both of them are right at different points. And sometimes even when they're disagreeing, they're both right. Or, or at least they both make valid arguments. And so I'm really, I think that's what I like about their relationship, that aside from one being a Klingon who murdered a, a crew member, who did get better, there's no 
black and white situation where one is good and one is bad. And I thought that Ash's reaction to Pike putting himself on that mission was very Riker-esque mm. in that sort of Captain Picard, come on, you are not go- you are not going to beam down to that planet. You are not going to take a shuttlecraft into that temporal anomaly. Which goes in line with what we were saying last week about uh, how Ash is, is very... That, that he's indoctrinated into Section 31. And one of the things about covert operations is that that because you're break, you're constantly breaking the rules the only thing that keeps you in step is the regulations to the order that they to their rules you know yeah. like you have to be lawful neutral i guess to, to the you know you have to follow the guidelines and so it's very mm-hmm. within uh ash's new role to be a riker-esque the, these are the rules and you have to follow them kind of yes. guy Yes, that makes a lot of sense. I don't know if anyone else at Section 31 is aware that there are rules there are me- that they're meant to follow, but I think we can discuss that shortly because I just wanted to say one more thing about Ash, which is I really like how little his time on Discovery has involved in interacting with Michael. He is actually taking her advice from last year and doing the work of recovery himself and not putting it on her, and I really respect that. And as much as maybe that's because she's t- just taken off to find her brother. Uh, I, <laughs> she's busy. Yeah, yeah. But he does overall seem to respect that. And, and most of his scenes are building this new relationship with Pike, which I'm really enjoying. And obviously for him to be an ongoing character, if he's around for season three and so forth, he does need to have relationships with people beyond Michael and Tilly. Right. It's good that they're taking their time to work Ash back into the Mm. ensemble, I guess. You know, it was really sweet when Ash sat at the table and then Tilly went over and then, like, the entire cafeteria went over. But it was also, like, really? (laughs) It just seemed like that was a little unrealistic. And this is more organic. Yes. But he's mainly there uh, in this this role with Pike, and so he's going to mostly interact with Pike and he's going to interact with Michael when she wants to because he I think he always wants to interact with Michael but he does respect that she needs her space and that she she has something else she's dealing with right now yeah yeah she can't deal with him (laughs) and I do think he knows that she was right last year that he needs to do this himself because it's not like there's any therapy available <laughs> he needs to Skype in with his <laughs> probably a robot therapist. <laughs> That's the, the number of people that are needed to do this therapy. I think everyone would maybe get a real person like once a month and the rest of the time. Robot. Robot therapists. Oh dear. <laughs> do we think that Section 31 respects the um, confidentiality of their employee assistant no. assistance program? Section 31 doesn't respect anything, as far as I can tell. They were just... (laughs) Okay. They're not very nice people. Back to Sarek being the worst parent. Amanda was right. Who in their right mind decides that Section 31 is definitely the best place to, to send your mentally ill son? Like... 
I think Sarek just has this really, really <laughs> profound respect for authority and has trouble believing that it could ever go wrong. But other people don't. Like, he's on the Federation Task Force. Like, Pike even says it in this episode, I think... Sarah's yeah, yeah. on the Federation Task Force. <laughs> Whatever that even means. I'm going to assume that Carnival is also on the Federation Task Force and that that's why she was <laughs> telling Section 31 what to do. Yeah, her name came up a lot this week. It was great. It was like living inside my head. Right, so inside my head, the Federation Task Force is Sarek and Cornwell. <laughs> and they're dealing with Section 31 as the, the main like pincer to, to find Spock for reasons. And so I can sort of, I, I agree with you, I understand why Sarek makes that decision, but I still think that he should second guess himself. But it's just like, no, no, Sarek. This is like when you trusted the evil emperor from the, uh, the other universe to, uh, to win the war for you. Like, that was a bad decision. Have we considered that maybe Sarek is just a little bit gullible? <laughs> Yes. I think that that explains a lot, actually. And, and then we come back around to, why does he have any of this power? <laughs> like, who in their right mind puts that guy in charge? Like, I love Sarek. I just want to put that out there. I love him so much, but he's such an adult. Like, <laughs> he is not a shining example of competence in any field, but... <laughs> He's just so... He tries! I am so stuck for a description. <laughs> He's just so... Sarek. Ernest, maybe? <laughs> like, I just... I think he honestly thinks this is the best course of action. And I respect people who really believe their nonsense. <laughs> and Sarek is really a very tragic figure. You know, by the time of his last appearance and his death in unification, he is estranged from his son. His other son, Cyborg, is dead. We assume that Michael has died of old age or shenanigans or something. Maybe the Red Angel is immortal. Anyway, <laughs> but the point is, he has really lost everyone but his second wife and his reputation. And, and he, he just, even in his last years, he still can't reconcile with Spock. And he, and he you know, in that, that beautifully acted scene where Picard has all, is holding all of Sarek's emotions and cannot yes. contain them because they're so powerful, and he admits that he never told the people that he loves that he loved them. <laughs> Because he didn't know how. He doesn't have the vocabulary. Yeah, yeah. And that's why I think he's a very tragic figure. But he's also, and I think we've discussed this a little bit in the past, <laughs> the worst. He's amazingly the worst. <laughs> like, he's just, he's so good at it. I just, I, you know, he's... You know like, who else is the worst? Leland. Leland is really the worst. Leland is the part of the episode, not even Leland, but I'm okay with him as the Section 31 guy. I liked him as Pike's old friend. Yes. But then in this episode, again, yeah, I was okay with him until the point where Giorgio said he's responsible for Michael's parents' death. And I was, that was just like, oh, I do not want, do not want, do not want, I don't even want to go there. I just, 
have zero interest in watching Michael's past as part of Leland's mm. characterization and redemption arc and whatever nonsense is going to happen from it. I don't see this as a, as a redemption arc, you know. I don't think this ends with Leland alive. You keep saying that, but I, can't, I guess I should just trust you that, that I shouldn't care about Leland at all. But it just, it felt manipulative instead of revelatory. Yes, I can see that. To me, this suggests some kind of uh, situation where whichever organisation Leland was with had intelligence about a coming Klingon attack on the science post where Michael and her family were. And saving people, preventing it, would have revealed that source of intelligence, which is a thing that happens and it's always a really interesting and complicated story and I'm sure that Leland made a bad call but I don't think that it's as straightforwardly bad or black and white as as Giorgio implies. I definitely think it's not black and white which is why I'm worried that it's going to be about Michael forgiving him and I just have like zero interest in that. (laughs) Oh god no. I don't want to go there. I was picturing uh, Giorgio killing him because Michael wouldn't and Michael refusing to kill someone is more about her principles than any forgiveness she might, may or may not offer. I, uh, I guess I don't see this. Uh, I'm not. <laughs> the scene where Michael is going to be in the position to maybe kill Leland, and and I, I okay, that's a scene that I had not anticipated, and so I, yeah, I don't, I don't. But I'm sure you like you're you're saying you didn't anticipate this the scene that I'm like scared of, which is the. Yeah. Leland needing uh, forgiveness from Michael for whatever reason. So, so I guess I, I admit that I'm irrational, but I'm, I was just worried. <laughs> I have to say that I am surprised that Leland's story intersected with Michael so much. And I enjoyed watching him lie to her because he did it in such a straightforward and friendly and open way. And I really believed that he had no intention to harm Spock. And... Part of me still wonders if maybe Giorgio was playing Michael for her own purposes, but I think yeah. for once the simplest explanation is no, she she saved Spock. And why wouldn't she? Because she really wants Michael to be on her side and she wants Michael to trust her so she can groom Michael to be like the daughter that she lost. Poor Michael. Everybody wants her to be something else. Yeah. She just wants to go find herself. Yeah, Michael just wants to be a nerd on Discovery and do science and maybe get to lead people again, and that would be great. Speaking of the nerds in Discovery, yes. Tilly and Samets were absolutely adorable this week. I Tilly know. has great hair again, <laughs> but she's also adorable. Tilly is so adorable, and I really liked when Samets said, trust the math. Yes. Because, you know, we, we've discussed that this whole season is about faith and trust in something, in anything, in the yes. red angel, in religion, in your family, you know, in whatever it is, in logic, in all of the things that different characters put their trust in. And I loved that trust the math and how it called back to, that's the power of math, everybody. Yes. I just thought that was a really, it was like a, it's like a throwaway line, but it meant a lot. It was a 
very, you know, clearly chosen for a reason. <laughs> and also, though Tilly has had a much smaller role the last couple of weeks, and I'm not surprised, I'm sure Mary Wiseman needed a break after all the fungus business, but... You know, one of the reasons that she missed May was because May, even a, even the real May as a child, really believed in her. So Stamets saying trust yourself really means something. Right. And that he trusts her. Yes. Which is, you know, he's the guy who could barely tolerate her last year. So that's pretty good. He's, he's grown a lot. They're a good little, little family group. Team science. Speaking of families and, and family groups, do we think Hugh is okay? Do we think he's just Skyping his therapist? <laughs> no, right? He's, you know, doing those those first steps that we were talking about. You know, getting yeah. back into a routine, but doing it slowly and on his own his own choices and his own way of doing things. Mm. He needs space. Everybody's giving him the space he needs. So we're, I'm going to assume that that's what's happening. I mean, I'm sure it was just... We don't have enough time to put you in this episode. <laughs> He's calling his family and like, hi, right, like, I'm not yeah. dead. What about all the other people who knew who? I like. I can absolutely imagine that they had lots and lots of friends who were all Hugh's friends. And you know, when he died, they like sent sympathy cards, but didn't didn't ever even really talk to Paul about it. And so yeah, we can assume that Hugh is catching up with his many many friends. <laughs> thought he was dead. <sighs> Problems that only Star Trek people have. <laughs> Speaking of, uh, has Ariane been hacked? Yeah. What? Has, has the squid probe taken her over? Because I'm kind of into that. Not gonna uh, lie. I mean, clearly something happened there. She's a Terminator now. Yeah, and it's, it's sort of like, ooh. I mean, Ariane has always been sort of, there's no explanation. What even is she? Is she from a race of cybernetic beings, or is she a, like a data type thing that somebody made? Like, there's no explanation for it's her. It's interesting because behind the scenes, the official social media in season one was saying she was an alien, and this season they're saying she's an augmented human. So I feel like they kind of came up with a really cool design and yeah. have, have um, <laughs> created a character to fit her. And I'm not complaining about that because I think that's a cool way, that's a useful way to get a, a good background character. But I am eager to get her story now if only because it will stop guys on reddit from asking twice a day mm. what's the deal with the robot on the bridge but i mean clearly okay so the squid did something to Ariam, and then that we saw twice we saw like evidence of it when mm. it first happened and then it went to her eyes again and then it transitioned immediately to section 31 so i was like okay <laughs> like they oh are projecting gosh. something here. Something is... <laughs> it's my crack theory that Section 1 is at war with itself from the future. And they're going to use Arium as some, some way. I mean, I am, I am hugely into a cyborg robot clone type character that is, like, hacked and taken over and has to do things against, you know, like, I'm super mm. into brainwashed assassin-type weapon girls. Like, I'm, go, if that's where we're going with this area, that's cool, <laughs> and I'm ready for it, as long as she survives. Uh, and then our final reveal of the episode was that Michael and Spock are off on a jaunt to Talos 4. Oh my gosh! 
the butthead aliens. I am so excited. I I was sitting on the couch and I sat up and said, holy shit. And then my flatmate was like, why? What does that mean? And I had to make her wait till the credits roll before I explained it. So I don't know about you, but I'm very glad that we watched The Cage so recently. Uh, yes. I was like, oh, we didn't like... I, when we were when we were watching the cage, I thought it was entirely to see Pike. <laughs> like, and I didn't think that anything else that happened was going to be relevant <laughs> because you know we already revisited that, and it's and it's it's a terrible episode. So why did you want to revisit it? And it's an important terrible episode. But oh my gosh, then and and it's like oh they're they're crazy brain aliens who mess with your brain and give you different visions like lots of co- like it's so obvious after the fact i was not expecting in any way that we were going to go back there or that it was going to be important same and i have to admit that i would not have picked take spock to tell us for as the writer's solution to his his mental illness or the telosians as the alternative to eddie medical practice whatsoever but particularly psychiatrists it's a very bad idea but i'm hopeful that this is going to fix menagerie yes i have said it makes me angry that spock decides to bring pike back there that that's his happy ending uh, yes. I, I hate that ending <laughs> and so i i'm looking forward to something that happens in this act that makes that a better choice so i'm i'm like they're gonna they're gonna like make spock's choice being be a good one in some way like it would be amazing if they somehow pull that off for me menagerie cannot be saved like the whole premise is just too ableist to cope with but if they could if they could some way make it less terrible i don't know how you would do that but i would i would definitely be here for that and i'm so keen to see if the 21st century version of the Telosians still have butt heads. And also, you know, maybe they also hate everything about the cage and, and just want to do that better too. Like, I was like, or, you know, maybe they're going to point, Michael is going to be the voice of reason and say, hey, this is actually awful. Everything yeah. about this is bad. Why are you doing... There's just, there's different ways this could go. Yes. And I think all of them are good. There's really, like, there's no way that it's going to be a, a redux of no, the cage. No. So, so whatever happens is going to be really great, I think. Do you think, and I, I personally think this is a long shot, do you think we could get a Vena cameo? I, I know. I've been, I was like, okay, so would they have secretly cast someone in this role or would they CGI her into the it's like there's like yeah it would make sense to me that this is how we bring number one and the enterprise back into it yes. is if they contact Pike and are like so that that whatever it is that we set up on Talos 4 to stop people from finding it just went off like the enterprise also goes back like I could like I'm I'm really excited for whatever happens because so many really cool things could happen. Way back when the season started, my brother predicted that there would be an episode where Pike becomes convinced that he never left Talos 4 and everything oh! he's experienced since has been an illusion. 
I am so here for that. <laughs> One, it's a great idea. Two, it's a, a, a neat new version of the traditional annual TNG torture Riker premise. Yes. And I just think it's cool. There's just so many different stories. And it's funny because, you know, my brother and, and a lot of people that I follow are, you know, they weren't keen on the whole, I, the idea of a prequel. They didn't like the fact that Spock was in this mm. or, you know, Pike. And it's like, why are we going back to those terrible stories is basically the, you know, it's like, <laughs> do we, do we really need to revisit the cage? The cage is awful. Let's just, you know, move on from that. And I totally understand that point of view, but going back to something that's established and blowing it up is my actual favorite thing. I am so happy for you right now. The best part of stories for me, I, I love cycles, you know, like uh, the Phoenix mm. life, death and rebirth kind of cycle, because every time it happens, it's different. And that's what's interesting. There are clever ways to tell a story that everybody knows. And I feel like that's what they're doing with the cage. They're saying, this is a story that happened in Star Trek that is important to the canon and the continuity, but we're going to retell it, not changing it, not, you know, what it, all the people who are against Discovery ent entirely are saying. We're not rewriting it but we're bringing it into the 21st century yeah exactly we're just we're just revisiting it yes in order to in order to do new and interesting things with this story that we already know i think that is a really wonderful place to wrap up <laughs> thank you for listening to anti-matterpod please rate and review us on itunes five-star reviews help make us visible to the world you cannot support us on Patreon or like us on Facebook. You can find us on Twitter at at antimatterpod, all one word, and also at antimatterpod.tumblr.com, including links to our social media and credits for our theme music. There's also, in the recent posts, a picture of Annika's Spock squid. Or as I think of it, Spocktopus. Please send that vaguely positive thoughts in our direction and join us next week for more discovery and more telosions and hopefully more buttheads. Yeah.